Hello and welcome to Discord, a podcast to explore the intersection between music and theatre. I'm Adam Lenson, and week by week, I will be trying to figure out the conundrum that is musical theatre. Welcome to episode 18. Hello and welcome to Discord Series 2. After a bit of a hiatus, we are back. So Happy New Year and welcome to a new series. For those of you joining us for the first time, welcome. And please do look back at our podcast feed where you'll find loads of episodes where we debate, discuss and try and figure out the enigmatic medium of musical theatre. This podcast began because I realised just how many fascinating and worthwhile conversations about musical theatre were happening in rehearsal rooms and pubs. And I I wanted to start having those conversations publicly so people could listen to them and engage with them. So please do listen to them and engage with us. You can let us know what you think or anything you have to say on Twitter or Facebook at Discord Theatre, or you can find me at Adam Lenson. So... On to the interview, I'm pleased to kick off this season by talking to writer Stuart Heritage. Stuart is a feature writer and columnist for a range of publications including The Guardian and is also the writer of Don't Be a Dick Pete, a family biography published by Penguin. But interviewing one person at a time is very series one of Discord, so I'm really pleased that joining Stuart and I in conversation is the actor and writer Alex Young. Alex's recent acting credits include the National Theatre's production of Follies, the English National Opera's production of Carousel, and the West End and Sheffield Crucible production of Showboat. But as well as acting, Alex is also a writer of new musical theatre, and along with Kate Marley, was the winner of the SNS Award for her show Here. And just a note to say that because Stuart, Alex, and I spoke for so long, I've decided to split this interview into two halves. So this episode will be the first half and the next episode will be the second half of our discussion as well as a summation of what I think can be learnt from everything that was said. Anyway, on with the show. On January the 10th, 2018, Stuart Heritage wrote an article for the Guardian's opinion section titled Les Miserables Without the Music, I Dreamed a Dream and It Came True. The piece is framed as a celebration of the television version of Les Miserables, which is not a musical. But the majority of the piece is used as a soapbox to describe what looks to be a profound hatred of musical theatre. Quotations include, there is no place in the world for musicals, now we have speech and emojis. Another quotation, no matter when you tune in, you'll be confronted only by the sight of people saying things in a normal way. It will be incredible. Your teeth will remain unground. Your sphincter will remain unclenched. It will give you everything you ever wanted from a musical without the agony of any actual music. Another quotation. For too long, the worst part of any musical has been the music. All the bloody music swelling up out of nowhere and killing the story dead for three minutes at a time so that some wobbly lip non-entity can stumble on and warble about how sad they are in rhyming couplets, even though they've already just said they're sad. Plus they've got a sad face, so everyone had already worked out that they were sad ages ago. Another quote, musicals are the lowest form of entertainment. And I say this as someone who has spent some of his morning watching a cartoon dinosaur kick a cartoon elephant unconscious on the YouTube kids app. Finally, I can't bring myself to trust people who enjoy musicals. I seem to have pegged them all as cheats, as people who don't understand subtext or nuance, who don't want to do the work and constantly have to have everything spelled out for them. You can draw a line between the invention of the musical and civilization's lowest point the advent of people clapping along to Strictly Come Dancing's theme tune. It's a straight line and it ends badly. I first saw the article on the Thursday morning after it had been posted and it was accompanied on my social media feeds by angry comments and messages from people I knew working in and around the musical theatre industry who were quite upset to have their art form so simplistically dismantled. I went to Stuart Heritage's Twitter profile where I saw he had posted the article with three words, all musicals stink. Now, it's not like I've never heard people dismiss musicals before, but I felt sad to see something so rushed and simplistic written in The Guardian. And while I could sense some conscious hyperbole in his writing, I still felt that it presumed so much about musicals. I fired off a tweet that suggested I was upset at how many assumptions he had made in his article. I said, There are indeed bad musicals. 
There are also indeed musicals not to your taste. But to say all musicals stink is like saying all books or all films stink. You simply don't know enough to judge an entire medium. Later that day, seeing the outrage on both sides and the flurry of social media activity in response to his article, I realised what I most wanted was to have a conversation that was longer than either his article or a few tweets. And that was when I realised I had this podcast. I hadn't made an episode for a while, but I'd been looking for an opportunity to bring it back for a second season, and what better opportunity? So I wrote him a tweet saying, Dear Stuart Heritage, I would love to interview you for my podcast Discord, an honest, thoughtful conversation about why you hate musicals, whether there are musicals you could like, and why confusing a few examples with a medium is problematic. I didn't expect to hear anything, but much to my surprise, he responded. Oh, maybe. I'm very willing to be convinced of my ignorance. But there's one more piece to the puzzle. That Thursday night, I'm told, fueled by red wine, actor and writer Alex Young wrote a 22-tweet Twitter thread that quickly spread through the community. It began... I'm not angry that someone thinks musical theatre stinks. We all know that musicals have a stigma within and outside our industry. She goes on, The thing that I'm angry about, and until now I've said it very quietly, is that sometimes musical theatre, especially commercial musical theatre, and yes, I do think there is a difference, does kind of stink. She goes on to write one of the most fluent and interesting descriptions of why musical theatre in this country is brilliant, but why it can also be problematic. It's nuanced, well-reasoned, and funny. It struck me that Alex, as a writer and performer of great note, was the perfect person to join this conversation with Stuart and me. So I asked if she wanted to come and chat, and she did. So, less than a week after the original article had been published, we found ourselves in a room in London, talking. I start by asking Stuart about the article. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if it was very widely read, I didn't really hear much about it. <laughs> for two days. Um, the story behind the column was that it was a badly organised column, basically, and um, for very boring technical reasons, the newspaper's going through a, uh, it's changing dimensions and deadline times have changed and the regular columnist fell through and I got an email saying, can you write a column? I went, yeah, what about this? And they said, no, we're doing a big feature about this. And I went, yeah. And so I said, what about this? And they said, well, yeah, that actually, that's a serious... It was about the army. And I thought, it would be funny if I'm mean about the army. And it turns out it wouldn't be funny, according to my editor. So I went, oh, musicals? There's a the thing about musicals. And they went, yeah, that would be good. So I just, in an hour and a half, because that's how long I had, I just gave it a sort of a very route one, uh, not very nuanced, clearly not very nuanced, um, thing about why I, di I don't like them very much and I there are things some things I would take back if I could have written again and there are some things I'd stand by. So we're one minute in and Stuart has already said that there are things in the article he'd take back as well as things that he'd stand by. So at the very least we already know that his opinion is more nuanced than the one that came across in the article. So I ask him to be nuanced and to tell us why he thinks he doesn't like musicals. I'm often put off by the, the inefficient nature of the storytelling. Um, on the way here, there is a podcast I listen to. It's a musical podcast um, called Off Book, and it's an improvised musical podcast. This is my first clue that we're not really dealing with someone who hates musicals because he listens to Off Book, a podcast which, hilariously, I also listen to every week. It's a show by Earwolf Theatre, who also produced Comedy Bang Bang, and in the podcast, three actor-singers and a pianist improvise a musical each week. For those of you from England, it's like the showstoppers, except in audio form. It's nerdy, and the people who perform in it are very, very funny, but they clearly know musical theatre well enough to use it and also to make fun of it. They celebrate and they mock the form in equal measure. And it's very funny, but I find myself turning off of it because the court, they repeat the chorus, and I'm like, well, that's, I've heard that joke now, you don't have to tell it four times. So it, there's sort of the inefficiency of it, which can take some getting used to. And I take Stuart's point. There can be inefficiency in storytelling of musicals. There can be repetition of tone and ideas. Sometimes there are songs that don't push the plot and don't communicate information as much as they could. And I think these are the things which can be true about musicals and are so often used to spoof them. It's what the makers of Off Book use to make fun of them. So 
It's a common idea and perhaps a common misconception that musicals are always inefficient. And some of them can indeed be, but they don't have to be. There are many examples of more efficient pieces, but I wonder if the musicals that we see regularly, that we're most exposed to, are, as Stuart says, quite inefficient. And also, uh, it's very like the, the cynic in me, the, the, it takes such a lot of commitment and sincerity to, to deliver a musical, I think, as a non-expert, to see people really giving it everything they've got. I, sometimes I, that's uncomfortable for me as, as a sort of a very non-committal layabout, to see someone really giving it everything they've got without fear of failure. <laughs> sometimes makes me uncomfortable, especially if I'm in a room with them while they're doing it. Especially if it's a small room, if, I've gone, if I'm going to a small production and I can make eye contact with them and they're really giving it everything they've got, I sometimes I feel... I, I don't know why it's, why I'm uncomfortable with it. And it's, it's obviously it's me and not you. Um, I don't know why that is. And I have to acknowledge that singing is heightened and non-naturalistic. And I do believe it takes more energy and investment to perform a song than it does to speak. And this idea that someone being sincere and committed is uncomfortable to watch is something I have heard before. It really, it's not just me. And it isn't just him. I've had a lot of people tell me that there are musicals that they've seen that have made them feel uncomfortable. And while I'm nervous of making broad brush sociological assertions, it is generally acknowledged that British people are more apologetic, especially when compared to Americans. Brits don't always say what we mean until we're very comfortable in a situation. And there are layers of subtext to the things that we say and a hefty amount of self-imposed irony and sarcasm in the way that we conduct ourselves. Whereas Americans tend to be more unapologetic about telling you what they mean. They'll be confident in selling themselves, being who they are and dreaming big. And maybe the fact that the musical originates in America means that there is a sense baked into a lot of the musicals that we're most familiar with, that musicals are committed and confident. And this can make some British people, those who are unused to this, feel quite uncomfortable. That's really interesting. Because, uh, I don't know a lot about sort of the state of the West End, but there seems like there's a lot of American productions or American transfers and I wonder if that's, that's rooted in it, just because there, there's less shame in being huge and um, dedicated. And I say that I seem to find that most of the British people I speak to who haven't got much experience of musicals tend either to think of the biggest, brashest American musicals like Annie, or when they think of the British musical, it tends to be Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals like Joseph and Cameron Mackintosh produced mega musicals like Les Miserables, all of which are intentionally epic and emotionally overblown, and which are extremely unlikely to appeal to the sensibilities of people like Stuart. I tell him my theory that something happened in the 1980s to British musical theatre. A small set of musicals became hugely successful and proved that the musical could make an absolute fortune. But the way these shows made that money was by sticking to a style, a tone and a scale. So, the 80s brought a set of shows that were very intense, melodramatic, emotional, and high scale. Roller skates. And I don't think is wrong. Ask most people about musicals, and they think of roller skates and revolves just as quickly as they think of earnestness and emotion. So, in the 80s, these musicals got so much coverage and ran for so long, indeed most of them are still running, that I think they became what people imagined when they thought of a musical. It seemed to become hardwired into British consciousness that these shows, these 10 or so shows, were musical theatre. But it also seems to me that as well as forcing a fixed notion of what a musical is into our collective consciousness, the musical also became codified as a commercial form. It became a form discussed for its money-making ability rather than its artistic potential. And it seems to me that this is visible in the way subsidised theatres and the Arts Council dealt with musicals for decades after. And so I say to Stuart, I think there's a reason why you have a fixed idea of what a musical is. Because for years, musicals weren't supported or allowed to be thought of as anything else. And the idea of what a British musical is today is something we ask a lot. What's the answer to that? What is the British musical? 
because my uh, column was very like it was all cats and big old ones. I don't know. I don't know what the what the sort of the landscape is at the moment. And sketchy, isn't it? It's difficult. It's get it's getting slightly better. There's there is growing support, but there's just like I said in my um, tweet rant, <laughs> there's just this hu- huge divide I think between things that are commercially successful and things that can be artistically acclaimed, and there's just very very few things managed to do that. Alex is spot on. After many difficult years, the new British musical scene is growing. There are people writing and developing musicals. There are people supporting new musicals. But the landscape is still subject to the extreme division between art and money that seems to afflict musicals more than other artistic mediums. Matilda managed to do it. It's a really smart thing and it's a really beautiful thing. And it's managed to be incredibly successful and commercial. I mean, again, it, that's based on a story that everybody knows. Yeah. It's got a ready-made audience and kids and school groups and parents and things. Have you, have you, have you seen Matilda? No, I haven't, no. But when your kids are older... Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. I, uh, it's, <laughs> oh, thanks. Both of it. Yes. Uh, yeah, well, as I, I'm not going... I don't hate musicals so much that if my child says, I want to go to this, I'm going to be like, no, you're going to... Strindberg. <laughs> enjoy prose. <laughs> Matilda is a good example of a show that I think Stuart could like. It was developed by a subsidised theatre with commercial aspiration. It's smart and artistic, as well as being an obviously commercial proposition and based on a well-known story by a well-known author. But it was one of very few available visible musicals that Alex and I could name that fit between the commercial and the subsidised. Everything feels like it's a, a financial decision, the big shows, rather than, rather than an artistic one. Everything is, if a film does well, I feel like there is... Uh, musicals are a way to keep the money coming in rather than something else um, and the, some of the performers as well it's it's like a weekendy sort of I remember Chicago there were posters every sort of three weeks saying guess what David Hasselhoff we've got Kelly Osborne and it's just people who you don't equate with being committed or musically talented they're just people who are doing it to have their name on a poster because it's like the next stop, they do Celebrity Come Dine With Me, they do I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here, and then they do a musical. Um, and there's, I think there's an element of that with Strictly as well, maybe not with musicals, but with performance. You do three weeks on Strictly and then you're allowed on the West End for a bit. And this conflation of celebrity culture and musicals is something I believe producers have done. And it's clearly something that casual observers of what a musical is, like Stuart, have picked up on. And while it might well get coach parties in, I do think it's doing the idea of what a musical can be damage. But, Stuart goes on to say pragmatically, all art forms have commercial necessity and that commercial necessity needs balancing off against artistic sensibilities. I had a book out last year and the publishing works in exactly the same way. There are book, like the book I wrote was very, very personal and it's done okay, but it was like, it's about my, my mum getting ill, basically. Um, and it hasn't made its money back and I'm not sure it ever will. So basically it's being funded by cookbooks and sort of ghost-written YouTuber autobiographies. So I know that that's the trade-off with this. The money, the money made by the big, big commercial stuff feeds the, the less commercial projects. And that makes a lot of sense to me that publishers looking for new books to publish will commission less commercially viable works alongside surefire commercial hits so that they can balance the books. The same happens in films, when new voices and independent films are funded by the same studio alongside their surefire hits and summer blockbusters, so that overall they will still be profit-making. The situations in publishing and film ensure that new voices, styles and ideas enter the mix each year, but ensure that they are commercially insulated. I'm grateful for Stuart explaining how it works in publishing because it seems like a good and obvious idea. You mix the old with the new, the established with the innovative. But after a hesitation, I admit to him sadly that this isn't how it works in musical theatre. Oh, really? I tell Stuart that people who have made shows for money tend to like making more shows for money. So you don't get as many situations where the producer of a major musical hit also produces shows that aren't likely to make any money or are only being produced for artistic merit. In fact, they seem to me to only enjoy replicating the type and style of show that has previously made them money in the hope of making more money again. 
they don't seem to me to fund and produce corresponding innovative shows. And they sometimes don't produce musicals again after having huge hits because the shows they make often continue to run and sell out for decades. So unlike with book publishers and film studios, there's less pressure to actually make new work at all after hitting it big. So what we get are either copies of stuff that's been commercially successful or just nothing, no new work. And I say to Stuart, it seems to me that the commercial West End is a bit like a book publisher that has realised it can make money by only publishing celebrity cookbooks and YouTube biographies. And maybe that industry will run out of ideas. But for the moment, it's making a lot of money. And it doesn't seem like that's going to stop anytime soon. So why should it worry? Oh, that's, that seems like a big problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, interesting. Oh, so, so I mean, but the, the, the big shows are sort of overwhelmingly, I think, in the public consciousness, that's what they think of. So we realise that when Stuart says he dislikes musicals, that he's really only talking about the commonly visible surface of musical theatre, which is big commercial hits from the 80s, jukebox musicals, and star casting. And these are things that even Alex and I, who care about musicals a great deal, aren't always fond of either. And yes, I would say that Stuart doesn't know a lot about musical theatre and probably shouldn't be making a blanket statement about hating all musicals. But would you dig into and interrogate a medium whose visible surface identity you genuinely thought you knew? A surface identity that's so clearly based around financial necessity, big commercial decision making and a very slim set of stylistic choices. Stuart in person does seem open to new ideas, but musical theatre as an industry, I feel, is rarely open to new ideas. There are many writers and creatives currently generating such exciting work and it's being workshopped and performed in concerts. But that work needs producing at a proper scale and showing to wider audiences and greater numbers of audiences. And wouldn't it be incredible, I say to Stuart, if more producers who were raising investment or benefiting from the financial rewards of mainstream hits were funding more new musicals or putting ideas that are distinct from the sort of musicals that Stuart thinks he knows, out into the world and getting audiences to see and enjoy and engage with them, even if, in the early days, those musicals don't make as much money as the others. But you'd think that's how it would be, because yeah. the, the hit just can't sustain itself. You need to, to, there needs to be some sort of development system in place, because that's where the, the new ideas come from. But I say it doesn't seem that musical theatre always needs new ideas because shows like Les Miserables are still running after three decades. That's true. All right. But I do genuinely believe that new ideas lead to new audiences and new levels of engagement and that perhaps people's ideas about hating musicals are difficult to shift because musicals are difficult to shift. There are some things going on, though. You know, Carol McIntosh has got the ambassadors and that's going to be... Uh, a building for new musical theatre or from theatres coming from subsidised sectors because a lot of subsidised theatres are not necessarily Priscilla March so I think they're going to do some development there to be able to make the space more versatile. And the idea of the producer of Les Miserables, Cameron McIntosh, creating a studio theatre in the West End with which to give a platform to more innovative new musicals is exciting. But Les Mis has been running for over 30 years at a huge profit And it does feel like an entire generation, maybe even two generations, have grown up with a calcified idea of what a musical is and what a musical can be. Because these initiatives are only just appearing now. And Beam, which is a new musical theatre writing showcase, has been supported by Angela Webber. So there is some stuff going on. Beam is a festival of new British musicals and new musical theatre writing, which has its second iteration this coming March 2018 at Theatre Royal Stratford East. It's produced by Mercury Musical Developments and the Musical Theatre Network. And as Alex says, it is being supported by the Andrew Lloyd Webber Foundation, as well as the Arts Council of Britain, and is definitely doing a lot to show the exciting and varied new work that is out there including a showcase of a new piece written by Alex Young with her collaborator Kate Marley. However, 
this is very much a festival produced for the industry itself and isn't something that someone like Stuart would be aware of without us telling him. And it's something that will only be able to start affecting people's perception of what a musical is when shows from initiatives like Beam start being properly produced and put in front of audiences. So while I'm not saying there isn't give back from large scale producers, I wouldn't say it's anywhere near as balanced as it is in film or books, where year by year, a proportion of the money that is made from huge movies and books is actually being used to produce, develop and take to the market films and books that buy new voices, that experiment with new styles, and that are not overtly commercial. I go on to reflect on the fact that The Birthday Party by Harold Pinter is currently being revived in the West End, and that this is maybe the fifth major production I could have seen of the show in London since becoming an adult. I also mentioned that I once saw three productions of Uncle Vanya by Chekhov in one year. I got to experience different perspectives and methodologies and scales and types of production. And that it's more than likely that I will only ever see one type of production of Les Mis in my lifetime or one type of production of Cats in my lifetime because it won't be revived and it won't be stripped back or reinterpreted. I say that I imagine there's a production of Les Mis that Stuart would absolutely love and perhaps hearing his preferences it might tend to be smaller in scale, reorchestrated with a chamber orchestra perhaps and have a paired back style of delivery and perhaps a smaller cast. But because we don't often get to see revivals of the big log-running musicals, we only have one idea of what that show is. But I think that is one of the things that happened in the 80s, as you were talking about, when we did these massive power musicals. Um, they became so... The piece came so intrinsically linked with their production. So Phantom of the Opera is so so linked with that particular design. Um, same with Cat Same with Lemmy's, you know. And, and therefore it kind of... St- maybe it stops sort of growing in a way and you can like every time you revive a new musical generally something new is found something exciting is found but yeah it's it's sort of less about maybe the piece and more about the entire package of production and you know yeah and i sometimes wonder if perhaps when you don't like a production of a musical that was directed and made 10 or 20 years ago which is still on every night and you say you don't like it, that it's a bit like watching an old film and saying you don't like modern films. And while art can look to the past, I also think it has a responsibility to respond to the present moment. And we should be able to have examples of productions or revivals or new work that is responsive to right now. And in the same way that there is with film. Spider-Man has been rebooted three times in 10 years in order to continually re-engage with young audiences who perhaps wouldn't want to engage so readily with the past versions. A successful play tends to run for three months to a year and then progress on a path where it can get revived or recontextualized regularly, whereas musicals rarely are revived or recontextualized. So if you're a person who cares about contemporary culture, then the musical doesn't always feel like it is connected or responsive to that. Speaking as someone who doesn't live in London and has two small children as well, I wonder if that those musicals you just talked about are sort of the safe bet for the casual... Because it's an expensive... If I wanted to go to a Western musical, there'd be a babysitter and there'd be train tickets and there'd be dinner and then there'd be the ticket. So it's an expensive evening out. And I wonder if people will... Because they've been around for so long, if that's why they're still around just because people it's familiar it's like going for a mcdonald's instead of trying out the sort of the weird new kimchi burger place um yeah i don't know i think Stuart is right that musicals are expensive to attend so the safe bets tend to be rewarded and if you don't like safe bets or things that are obvious then you might also assume that musicals as they are most visibly presented to the world are not for you but i also said to Stuart. While McDonald's and Starbucks are very popular, you might not like either of them, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you don't like burgers or coffee, because sometimes the most popular form of something isn't necessarily the best version of it, or the most interesting, or the most experimental version of it. Alex goes on to very much agree with Stuart that the cost of attending a musical does lead to people playing it safe and sticking to what they know. I think that's so the case, because people just can't don't want to risk their money anymore, especially at the moment. And um, 
yeah, I, I think it's it's quite a lot to ask people to spend what about five hundred pounds really realistic, and then if they've got to have to have hotels on top of it, it's quite a lot to ask them to risk that all on a new production of a new musical with no stars in it, with just excellent people, and yeah, I, I think it's I think it's too much to ask, especially with the way that our audiences have kind of been. Educated, that sounds patronising, but I think it, there is a kind of education there in terms of like what you were saying with Chicago. That was sort of one of the first times it started happening that people who weren't necessarily involved in the business at all in any way were suddenly in musicals. I mean, there's always been stars in musicals. I mean, Michael Crawford, mm. he was the first Phantom, but he was an actor. Um, and then when, when Chicago first started putting celebs in, it was people like Denise Van Alton. I think yeah. she was like the first was the first big name in there, but she'd been trained in, in theatre. But, it, you know, we slowly just started to just put a, a, any old name in there, really. And some have been amazing, regardless of whether they've been trained or not. Some have just have a natural aptitude. But I think, I think because of the way we've, we've sort of educated our audiences, I don't feel we should be surprised that people aren't going to risk their money. And, and there's, there's a problem within, and that's what we need to look to. Whether it's achievable or not, I don't know. I completely agree with Alex. And I've been thinking for a while that producers and audiences in musical theatre seem to be in a mutually destructive relationship where in order to sell tickets in the short term, producers often give audiences more and more improbably cast shows that create buzz that is less and less sustainable and based upon less and less talent and training. And this gradually shifts the expectations of audiences until it seems that a musical has to have a famous and perhaps not particularly talented cast, which means that people like Stuart, who aren't necessarily interested in just seeing a cavalcade of stars perform something from 20 years ago or something based on a jukebox catalogue, are left with nothing that would really interest them. I mentioned to Alex and Stuart that in a particularly improbable moment of star casting in America, the American football running back Eddie George from the Tennessee Titans found himself playing Billy Flynn in Chicago. And I wondered if that really did bring new people into musical theatre and whether or not American football fans suddenly found themselves interested in Broadway musicals. Well, that's it. I mean, we've got Fre Freddie Flintoff is the cricketer that I mentioned that's in a, a, um, a new musical called Fat Friends. Freddie Flintoff, the ex-international England cricket player, is in a production of a new British musical based on a British television show, Fat Friends, by writer Kay Meller. It's good fun and it's fine and he's charismatic and lovely. But would cricketers cricket fans go and see musicals i think that's the problem is what are those um diagrams you know yeah, yeah, yeah. thank you that i think you've got to get exactly the there's no point putting somebody in a musical if their fans are not going to enjoy musicals and i completely agree because if you cast someone in a musical just to get audiences along, but those audiences don't like what they see when they get there, then you're just putting more people out into the world who think they dislike musicals because they've been there for the wrong reasons. And the medium's many advantages and possibilities aren't working for those people, but against them. I've spoken in a previous episode of this podcast about comic books and their similarity to musical theatre. Because like musicals, I think comics are beset by assumptions about the type of stories that people believe the medium can tell. They are also both intersected mediums. People hear comic books and they often think superheroes, silliness and bright colours. Just as surely as they hear the term musical theatre and think melodrama, emotion, spectacle and enjoyment. People balk at the ideas that musicals and comics could deal with themes of depression or sexuality or the Holocaust or cancer. In an interview with The New Yorker, noted comic book writer Marjorie Liu said, For many years, comics were seen as childish and remedial, but it's starting to change. I say to Stuart and Alex that I wonder if, because comics and musicals are both mediums that we first encounter as children, whether it's Spider-Man or Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, that potentially people in this country fix their idea of the capabilities of the medium on those early experiences. 
I also wonder if people assume that continuing to like both comics and musicals into adulthood is a similar form of arrested development, one that shows you not growing into the nuance and the complexity associated with becoming an adult. It does sort of make sense. My assumption is, and it's the wrong assumption, I know, so don't tweet me, <laughs> is that um, the song... I mean, you, you grow up being used to pop songs where you can take a complicated idea and you just flatten it out into the, its sort of its most basic parts. And to someone as uneducated as me, I do sometimes think that a musical is that, is that you have all the progression is in the bits between the songs. And then there's this bit without nuance. That's the punctuation of it. And I know it's, it's wrong, but that's... I, I probably what I think about it. I don't think it's entirely wrong. I think there are definite, there's definitely shows where the storytelling or the progression of, of the character's thought and the character's decisions stop. We, we have a, a, a term in musical theatre writing between uh, room songs and choreo songs. And room songs are sort of, uh, that sort of explore the emotion that you're currently feeling, a bit like a pop song does. Mm-hmm. You don't tend to have pop songs that take the singer from one uh, thought point to another. And then you have a, a corridor song, which is where decisions are made. It's like it's much more of an active thing than a reflective thing. Um, so sometimes, for instance, is all corridor songs, yeah. really. All of his songs are kind of like mini plays, really, in which the character either discovers something or decides something or reveals something. Um, so I don't think you're entirely wrong. I think, I think Les Mis has bits of both. Um, but like, you know, you mentioned I Dreamed a Dream, and that is a song about, like you say, like just being real sad. Yeah. She's not discovering how sad she is. She knows how sad she is, and it's just a song going, I'm so sad. Um, and some people love it, and some people don't, and that's fine. But, um, so I don't think you're entirely wrong in that assumption. I can see why having a show full of room songs might feel childish and boring and lacking nuance. Yeah. Especially when the songs already exist as pop songs. Yeah. So I haven't seen the Queen musical, but I or well, I've seen Mamma Mia. There we go. I've, I've seen the I've seen a, I saw a Korean version, a Korean stage version of Mamma Mia. How? With sir titles. How? Uh, I was I lived in Korea. Oh. I, I, I didn't just right. seek it out. Yeah. So uh, uh, one of my pupils' parents bought it for me as a present. Hmm. Um. And I mean the songs aren't. They existed before, and it's it's sort of a re, like a backwards engineering, which I think you can see through, and I think it's quite. Um, and I'm talking obviously, I'm talking about sort of the lowest form of musical now, which is obviously I don't want to compare that to the whole uh, medium. Um, but yeah, it's, they're, they're they're all room songs, and they're room songs everyone knows. Mm. So you. There, there's an element of sort of unconsciousness about it. You just, it starts and you go, oh, okay. And I think it's heartening that in what Stuart just said, he talked about not making a blanket statement where you conflate an example of a musical with all musicals. But I think he's right that if a show is all made up of room songs that are kind of flat and that as soon as the song has started, you know all of the information that is going to be in the song and then you just have to wait three to five minutes for that song to complete that it, it does chime with what he said earlier about the inefficiency of the storytelling that you often find in musicals and if you dislike repetition and room songs and inefficiency of storytelling then there are a lot of musicals that may not be to your liking i then theorized that the jukebox musical being so prevalent in the West End has potentially led people to see musical theatre as just a bunch of very flat room songs, songs that don't progress the plot. I wonder if that in some way has got into the medium and that people making new musicals often are copying that rather than seeing the full potential of what music and song is capable of in a dramatic context. I often use the metaphor of photocopying to suggest the way in which people copy something that already exists, but make it slightly diluted. So often when you photocopy an image, 
you get the same image, but it's paler. And then if you photocopy that photocopy, you get the same thing, but it's paler. And if you don't understand the first principles from which the thing that you're copying is derived, you end up with something that actually is paler and less interesting than what comes before. There are a lot of those in the 90s, weren't there, where everyone was like, I'm going to make reservoir dogs. And that's without knowing the, the um, foundations that Tarantino builds on. Yeah, I understand that. That's true of uh, all, all things I think you can copy. Publishing. I'm, I've got a lot of things about books. <laughs> That's my touch point. But as soon as there's one popular idea in books, it's done to death uh, currently. And it's not, I mean, this is just a title of a book, but there are lots of how-to books because there was one popular how-to book. So now there's, any time you pitch a book, they say they have a how-to title that they can give to publishers and they're like, well, maybe we'll change it. But that's what they know works. And it's sort of, it's warped beyond, like you were saying with music, it's warped all beyond all recognition now. It's just a mutant sort of offshoot that's come from no, has no underpinnings anymore. And I think in musical theatre, like in books and films, we should be questioning these mutant offshoots with no underpinnings and no lineage. And we shouldn't just copy and copy and make paler and paler shows that are copies just for the sake of it, just because we think people might want them, just because we think they might make money. Because in the end, that's going to lead to less good art and fewer interesting products. Very interesting what you said about the way people are learning from jukebox and the, and the way that songs function in jukebox and, 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 and forgetting about your basic rules of storytelling um, and how you do that through song. Like the fundamentals of storytelling is that you're surprised by things yeah. and that there are twists and plot points. Um, uh, and that, that must be harder to do in song. You can't, a song can't start and everyone goes, oh God, the murderer was the butler. That was a really crap example. <laughs> but um, that, yeah, it's, it, it must be harder to, to sort of fundamentally package the mechanics of a story into, yeah. into a set form, like song. Well, I think it's funny you say that because actually when I'm working on material, and some, my, my background is actually music, I've studied music before acting, and when you're working on really good material, you can see there's, there's two stories going on. There's, there's what you're saying with the lyric, and then the music's telling you something else. And that's when it's done well, that's where that kind of nuance and subtlety can come from. And I don't think it should be like an academic exercise. That sh it should be able to be appreciated in the moment by a listener, whether they're sophisticated or, um, or knowledgeable of music or not. But um, I think when it's done right, it is quite... It, it, it's an exciting way to tell a story. Um, yes, it's hard, but you kind of have a, whereas you deal with just the words, mm. it's kind of a, a bonus to have this other like, I mean, that's your subtext, that's your, all your subconscious, the music underneath. I'm doing lots of gestures. Um, yeah, so I, I, think, I think the way to tell a story can be a lot broader and you can explore a lot more ways to tell a story when you've got the music there. That makes sense. Good. That makes lots of sense. This is the worst possible example to back this up with. But there is a cartoon about a horse uh, that's soundtracked by Brian Adams songs that I watch on Netflix with my son. And it's just, it's, a, it's called uh, The Spirit of the West. Or something. It's just a horse growing. It's like Bambi, but with a horse. And, uh, and, it's a Brian, and they're Brian Adams songs. So they're not good songs. I think they were written specifically for the film. And you know, everything is very, every, the rhymes are very obvious and you can see them coming. But there's like, there's one bit where the horse walks away from his mum and my God, with, with the music, I cry every single time. Yeah. So I, I get it. Yeah. I mean, it's what people say in films, isn't it? Turn the soundtrack off and you won't find them scary, you won't find them yeah. moving or whatever. But I think there's something else, it's not just about music kind of supporting what's going on. Sometimes the music can directly contradict what the actor is saying. So, like in a lot of song time, you're, you're saying something. Um, there's the end of uh, First Act of Company when the actor, Bobby, the lead character, is sort of struggling with the idea of getting married. And at the end of Act One, he's going, I'm ready, I'm ready now. But the music is doing such a thing that the audience are going, oh, no, you're not, dear. There's more to learn. It, so it can be a direct contradiction rather than something supporting. And I think in discussing the power that music has to move us, 
and the ability of both the words and the music to communicate information comes the acknowledgement that they can be used together and they can be used in opposite directions, but that there's a power and a complexity to wielding those two things together because there's more complexity when you haven't just got words, you've also got music to deal with too. And in a musical, there's also performance and production and all sorts of elements that are happening at the same time. And I say to Stuart, I wonder if using all of those elements inexpertly can be problematic and is one of the reasons why he sometimes finds watching musical theatre difficult. Because if the music and the words and the staging and the acting are used inexpertly, they might all end up saying exactly the same thing at the same time. And that might make something feel obvious and overtold and potentially a bit aggressive and also a bit emotionally manipulative. I then come up with a metaphor which is a bit clumsy but it does the job, which is to say if the music and the words and the staging and the performance are all saying the same thing at the same time, it's a bit like a person just wearing red clothing. That might be it. There is... I think that that's a really good point. There is music as well as story, as well as everything. If it's, I've never thought about it like that. That's that's very interesting. This is really good. I'm being taught why I don't like them because you're giving me bad examples of of what I like, and you're teaching me that I'm I need to broaden my palette. Need to do anything? Oh, no, I no. This was an interesting point that I that I was thinking about. It's like. What, does everyone need to like everything? Isn't that why there is so much art and so many different forms of it? Um, I got I got like a little bit. <laughs> I felt really sorry for you when you're getting all the abuse. Um, <laughs> were you surprised, by the way? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. I was surprised because uh, I well. I didn't realise until late in the day, there was a bit at the end of the column where I was just like, literally the, the second to last line was, I don't know anything about this. I, it was, it was uh, the, last, the last paragraph is, now they've got rid of music from musicals, maybe they'll get rid of the worst things from other things, like drum solos out of prog songs and something else. And the last bit was um, uh, like ill-thought-out critiques of perfectly valid <laughs> musicals in otherwise sensible newspapers. That was the line. And they fucking they took it out. It. And I, that... I, there were other bits that I, I hoped would have communicated that I didn't really mean it, but that were taken by face value. And I could definitely sense that there was some conscious and intentional hyperbole in Stuart's writing. But I think it's a shame that the lines that would have made that completely obvious were taken out. Because it definitely did make it possible to read the article and see him as someone who didn't know what he was talking about and didn't really care. But the reality of Stuart seems different to me. He is someone who doesn't really know what he's talking about, but he can make fun of that and himself. And in reality, is happy to talk through that in a thoughtful and nuanced way. If anything, I found the conversation very useful and I'm glad that the article began this dialogue. Because not only did talking to Stuart teach me about how to talk to people who say they hate musicals, but also... It began a conversation about how we can make musicals better and better understand the reasons why people don't like them. The thing I wish I hadn't done, I was mean about the performance, which doesn't seem fair. The few times I've been to see a musical, I've always been amazed by the, the spectacle of it and the effort that goes into it. You, you did come off the back of just a, a series of things that had happened, like our, our own our equity is our union, and they referred to us in an email as musical theatre performers rather than actors. The, the Globe had put out a poll on Twitter saying, oh, we're about to open our first musical. And it was a poll like, what do you prefer, musical theatre, theatre? And we were like, <sighs> and just a few things like that had just been happening. And I think you were just unfortunately the latest. And there was a lot of... There has been a lot of anger in the air amongst musical theatre performers and I think as it is just we do generally suffer snobbery within our own industry and outside of it. Um, and it is kind of like a tiring thing to have to constantly defend why you like something and why you may have decided to make your living out of it. You feel like a tit but, um, and a geek. Um, 
and at e geekier still because you have to go, but there's really good stuff that you haven't seen um, that only five people have, but it's great. Um, so yeah, yes. Yeah. And the more I have these conversations, the more I realize it's just not that useful to be the person that says, if you just knew more about musicals, then you'd like them more. Because, well, that's probably true. And there are some excellent examples of musicals that could change people's minds and people's perceptions of the medium. I think that in the main, the reason people have grown to the conclusion that they dislike musicals and the reason that there's so much snobbery against musicals is because the visible face of musical theatre in this country is based on a very restricted set of examples. They are often mega musicals or jukebox musicals. They're often paired with celebrity casting and flat, shapeless, emotional and manipulative songs. Ronald Reagan once said with regards to politics, if you're explaining, you're losing. And I think that's true. We need to stop explaining and start showing people what the musical is capable of. Start showing how different it can be and start putting that in visible places where audiences can come to it themselves and be interested in it themselves. We need to platform work that shows the past strengths of the musicals and also the great originality that it can contain. And I think that is starting to happen, whether it's Hamilton playing in the West End or Follies playing at the National Theatre. But I also think we need more British examples of new musicals that make it to wider audiences and that break the perceived notion of what a musical is or has been. Because only then... Are we going to change people's minds? Thanks for listening to part one of this interview and part two will be with you next week. Discord is hosted and produced by me, Adam Lenson. Our co-producer is Emma Clauber. Special thanks this week goes to Molly Lynch, who has previously been a guest on the podcast. It was her Twitter interaction with me and Stuart Heritage that convinced me that sitting down for a chat was the best course of action. Editorial assistance is from Daisy Chute, Michael Conley, Jonathan Lenson, Sarah Middleton, and Oliver Soans. You can drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter at Discord Theatre. And our theme music is by Luke Bateman. <laughs>